Our Old Testament reading this morning comes to us from the book of the prophet Micah. In the sixth chapter, and this morning, we'll hear the first five verses. So I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Up. State your case to the mountains, but the hills hear your plea. Hear the Lord's case, you mountains, you everlasting pillars that bear up the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people and will argue it with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Tell me how I have wearied you. Answer me this. I brought you up from Egypt. I ransomed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to lead you. Remember, my people, what Balak, king of Moab, schemed against you, and how Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. Consider the journey from Shittim to Gilgal in order that you may know the triumph of the Lord. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading for this morning comes to us from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in the first chapter, beginning at verse 18 and continuing through verse 25. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. As Paul is writing this, his introductory letter to the Christian fellowship in Corinth, he paraphrases a brief saying from the Lord that has been recorded for us in the book of the prophet Isaiah. He must have had reason to suspect that at least some of the Corinthians had been, like himself, converts to Judaism, or, at the very least, Gentiles who had a philosophical interest in Hebrew history and wisdom traditions. So he hearkens back to a passage from arguably the greatest and certainly the most prolific of the Old Testament prophets. He lifts up a text that foretells of a time when those who had been considered wise will be left without wisdom and those considered to be discerning 
will cease to be. But even as he does this, the apostle adds his own commentary to it by indicating that such a state of confusion won't just happen, but that rather God himself is going to be the agent of this confusion. On the surface, it might seem rather odd that a beneficent deity would act in a seemingly capricious and perhaps even malevolent way. Why would a God who is touted as being helpful then be anything but? However, it is not out of character for a God who would bring about the release of his captive people through a series of misfortunes, plagues, death and destruction such as that that he visits on the Egyptian oppressors. It is not out of context for a God who is aiding and abiding in the conquest of native tribes to make a homeland for another people, his people. Once upon a time in seminary, theology professors and biblical scholars were granted enough academic freedom that they could discuss a topic called the scandal of particularity. It's a phrase that you, you don't hear bandied about all that much anymore. But before it became a term that we dare not speak, it pointed to a challenging yet very reformed understanding of the nature of just such a God as revealed in Scripture. One of those who introduced me to it was also the author of a commentary on the books of Leviticus and Numbers. And in that book, he provided what I think is an excellent introductory overview to this controversial school of thought when he wrote that from the beginning it has been a particular story about particular people, and he referenced the call story that begins in Genesis 12, where we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, the prophet Isaiah, whose words would be incorporated into this argument of the apostles, also revealed that the Lord God has called his people by name. Thus saith the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Then, in his commentary, my former professor fast-forwards to precisely the place where we found ourselves last Sunday in that gospel call story we heard from Matthew. When he said later missions begin with the equal personally with the, with equally personal gatherings such as as Jesus passed along the sea of Galilee he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And what did Jesus do? He called them from their surrounding. I believe my professor's theological worldview is closely aligned with others in the faith who hold to a high doctrine of the sovereignty of God and of election. On a February Sunday, 153 years ago, another quite famous preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon was in his pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he asserted this, that nation, the nation of Israel, 
was precious in God's sight. He had been pleased sovereignly to make an election of the seed of Abraham that they should be his portion, that he should be their portion forevermore. They were precious in his sight because of the covenant which he had made with their great forefather, saying to Abraham, in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This word of promise elevated them to an eminent position before the Lord. They were precious in the Lord's sight because his honor was concerned in their history. And well before Spurgeon or the Reformers or even the Church Fathers, the Apostle Paul's thought on the matter are reflected here in this first letter to the Corinthians that he introduces by writing, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see what he's done there? He's begun making a case for an us versus a them. The people of God in opposition to the people of the world. That's the sort of talk that get Christians in trouble nowadays by those who would argue that God is too merciful to judge. While Jesus teaches his disciples that they should not judge the sole privilege, right, and dare I say, obligation of a just God, the sovereign maker and master of the universe, to not judge would be an abrogation of his authority. By using such big and fancy theological terms in my sermon, by the way, I'm proving that I haven't taken yet to pressing a button on my computer and having an artificial intelligence program spit out the text for me. The day may come, but it isn't here yet. But I digress. Because the huge majority of the world didn't know God in a personal way, God sent Jesus to earth by way of an introduction. Man did not come to know God by cleverly figuring out all by himself. We unlocked the mysteries of the pyramids and of mathematics and of flight and even of the atom. But we never could unlock the mystery of our own creation until along came God in the flesh. And even then, we were a bit too wise for our own good. God came to his own, and God's people rejected the one through whom all things were made, and without whom not a single thing was made. But that didn't negate the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. It did not negate his atoning sacrifice on the cross for those who believed. None of this made any sense to the world. It didn't make any sense to the Hebrews, whose God was exemplified by mighty acts of power on behalf of the Israelites. As we're reminded again, in this morning's reading from the prophet Micah. Of course, this God, 
would again intervene on behalf of his people and get them out of yet another fine mess they had found themselves in during the reign of the Herodian kings, their God would not, could not be defeated by man. The Gentiles, too, knew that the nature of a deity was above suffering and dying on a criminal's cross. None of that made any sense at all, which is precisely Paul's point. Say what you want about him. It certainly seems as if he was a pretty bright guy. Certainly, he could see just as well as anyone how off the wall this whole Christian heresy was. Well, that's why he was out there in the first place, in the vanguard of shutting it down, ruthlessly shutting up those who would dare to speak such blasphemy about the God he had spent his whole life studying. When the risen Jesus directly and dramatically intervened to break the news to Paul that he had it figured out all wrong, he then set out to retell the story of both God and man. Paul set about setting the record straight. Seems he had been ever too clever for his own good. He's in good company there. In his time and right up through our own, there have been billions of others that the same could be said of. God has seen it too and has acted and is acting to combat this misguided human cleverness. And the chief means that God has employed in his eternal wisdom is the scandal of the cross, which sounds foolish. Yet there's a beautiful method to such apparent madness. Those who believe will be granted understanding. Those who have been chosen will receive wisdom, not the wisdom of this world, but a much different spiritual wisdom. God has revealed himself to his people in a spectacular and an unexpected way. Not only has his word in scripture been sent among us to enlighten our minds, but his word in flesh has been sent among us to make us wise. The saving power of Jesus was right here on display among men. It was recorded in the Gospels and proclaimed by the Apostles. It gave birth to the church, which ever since has spread this truth, even today, here and in China as well. Though it may not always be so readily apparent, we have been called by God in the latest chapter of this scandal of particularity. But just like the children of Abram, God has called us not simply to be blessed among the nations, but so that we might be a blessing unto the nations. Part of that calling involves refuting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the knowledge of Christ. We are presented with opportunities to do so all the time, whether it is an interaction taking place in a workplace or a school, or a store, or a home, or over the phone, or online. When we, as his servants in our own time and place, live into this calling to oppose the gospels of the world, 
with the gospel of Jesus, we demonstrate and affirm Paul's claim to the Corinthians that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.